Well, good morning, church. Today, I want to talk about losing your life to save it. Before we begin, let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we pray that only your word be spoken, only your word heard, and only your word lived. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's begin by reflecting on the words of Jesus we heard in our gospel reading. And this is beginning at verse 34. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying here, let's look at the interaction between Peter and Jesus, because there's information there that will shape how we understand what Jesus is calling us to. Now, our story today starts with Peter uh, when he sees Jesus for who he is. In verse 29, Jesus asks the disciples who they think he is, and they have some guesses, but Peter answers, you are the Messiah. Now, Messiah means anointed one, and this is a big deal. The anointed one in Jewish tradition is a king, but more than that, he is the king of kings, right? The Messiah is the one who will set all things right. And so for them, this is amazing news. And what we notice here is that Peter is right, but he doesn't see just how right he is. So Jesus begins to teach his disciples. He starts using this term, the Son of Man. And it's a reference to a character in the book of Daniel. And the Son of Man is a messianic character, a heavenly divine character. The kind of person who could, in fact, bring love, justice, and peace to the world. And so Jesus is saying that he is the Son of Man. But Jesus does something unprecedented. He says that the Son of Man must suffer. You see, in the book of Isaiah, there's a mention of another character uh, called the Suffering Servant. And no one had combined these two ideas together, the Son of Man and the Suffering Servant, until Jesus. Jesus claims he is the Messiah and that he must suffer. And so he combines those two characters, and then he says that about himself. And this freaks Peter out. It says that Peter rebukes Jesus. Right? This is a very intense moment. Rebuking is only mentioned in reference to what Jesus does to demons. And so we have to be wondering, why does Peter lose it? Well, because Jesus is saying to him, yes, I'm the Messiah, I'm the king, I'm going to defeat all evil and injustice, and I'm going to do that not by going to a throne, but by going to a cross. And this completely shattered Peter's expectations. It so completely shattered his categories, what he was comfortable with. He didn't like it. I mean, do you know what death on the cross meant? To die on the cross meant to die in complete helplessness and shame. Every other form of execution gave the person being executed maybe some dignity or even some power. 
But on the cross, you're stripped naked. Your hands and your feet are nailed publicly. Everyone can stare at you. It's the definition of helplessness and shame. And yet, suffering is so crucial, Jesus mentions it twice. And Jesus makes it clear that suffering is a must. He doesn't say, I'm going to die. He says, I have to die. In other words, he's saying the world can't be renewed. Your life can't be renewed. True love can't be realized in this world unless I die. But why? Why does Jesus say he has to die? Let me give you three reasons. First, because without Jesus' complete love on the cross, we can't love completely. You know, our loves are always partial and self-serving, though we all hunger for complete love. The truth is, we can all distinguish between a false and true love. False love is conditional and self-serving. Affection is only granted if you meet someone else's desires. But real love spends itself for the joy and happiness of the other. It's thoroughly selfless. You know, unfortunately, none of us can offer real love completely. We approximate real love, but we repeatedly fall short. The tragedy is that we desperately need real love and therefore can't give it completely away. There's always an investment mentality when it comes to love. We invest in those who will give us a fair return. So in human relationships, to some degree, our love is conditional and non-vulnerable. Because to some degree, we're not loving uh, anyone just for who they are. We're loving for what we can get out of it. But Jesus is not like this. His whole life, his death, proves that he isn't at all like this. Jesus, as part of the Holy Trinity, has been giving and receiving real, complete, selfless love for all eternity. I mean, that's what the Trinity is. And he died on the cross to bring real love into our world. That's why Jesus says, I must suffer, I must die for you, I must give myself for you. Otherwise, you will never be capable of this kind of love yourself. Secondly, Jesus had to die because forgiveness is costly. Now, this isn't a sermon on forgiveness, but we can't talk about the cross without it. And so here's what we know. We know that forgiveness is costly, and that's not a human quirk, that it's embedded into the fabric of reality. Our deep sense that forgiveness is costly is due to our being made in the image of God. It costs God to forgive. On the cross, God pays the price for our forgiveness. I mean, just think about how forgiveness works. When someone wrongs you, you'll find there is a debt to be paid. So if they break something of yours, either they pay for the damage or you do, right? I mean, in that example, there's an economic debt and someone's paying. But think if someone really wrongs you. 
Maybe they rob you of an opportunity, or maybe they rob you of happiness, or maybe they rob you of your good reputation. There's a sense of debt that something has been taken away that you can't get back. You sense that justice has been violated and you can't just shrug it off. And so now you have a choice. You can get back at them, you know, or you can forgive. Now, if you choose to get back at them, you know, try to rob them of their happiness or rob them of their good reputation, you will become cold and hard. You'll become like the ones who hurt you. Now, this is the hopeless option, and it is chosen too often in our broken world. It feels good, but in the end, it leads violence and despair. Forgiveness is the right choice, but it's also the painful choice. If you choose to forgive, you will suffer. Forgiveness always hurts. Every time you remember how they've hurt you and you choose not to think or say evil about them, you choose peace instead of violence, you choose forgiveness, it will hurt like death. It's an agony. But why are you suffering? Because you're absorbing the cost. Instead of making them suffer, you're absorbing the cost. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness always entails suffering. Did you know that? If you've really, truly been wronged and you forgive, the forgiver suffers. Or you can make them suffer, but it's one or the other. The debt doesn't just disappear into thin air. Somebody pays. They pay or you pay. So if on a human level we get that forgiveness means suffering, and we can see that the only hope we have is to forgive, why does it surprise us when God says, the only way I can forgive the sins of the human race is if I suffer? How is that surprising? It's either God or us. And God says, I must suffer. Either you're going to pay the penalty for sin or I will. Either you bear the infinite judgment on sin or I take it on myself. And on the cross, we see Jesus doing eternally and ultimately what we have to do even on a human level, on an infinitely smaller scale. Jesus says, I must suffer for forgiveness to be a real option in this world. Thirdly, Jesus died to free us from the demonic powers in this world. Now, if you're a Christian, and if mentioning demons and the devil feels weird to you, just remember that you believe in God. So the devil and the demonic are part of the intellectual package. You can't just pick and choose. Jesus took this seriously, and therefore we must as well. As Hamlet said to Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. So I'm going to invite you to keep an open mind and apply that open mind to the Bible. You see, in Colossians chapter 2, we're told that when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he defeated the powers and principalities in high places. Now, it seems very strange when you first read it, but it makes more sense when you reflect on Jesus. 
You know, in our gospel reading, notice that during Peter's freak-out moment, when he rebuked Jesus, Jesus calls Peter Satan. Why did he do that? Jesus was signaling that behind the systems that we set up to exploit and oppress people, so systemic racism or systemic injustice, there are demonic forces. So when the Bible says that on the cross, Jesus Christ conquered the evils that had power over us, it means that he defeated the principalities and powers, both human and demonic. On the cross, Jesus upset the corrupt pattern of this world. When Jesus Christ went to the cross and he won through losing and he got power and influence through service and he got all the riches of glory by giving all of his wealth away, when Jesus Christ got our forgiveness and pardon on the cross by turning the values of the world on its head, you know, he turned on the, uh, the values on its head, the, the world's obsession with power and privilege, of celebrity and popularity, of status and money, all of that was exposed and defeated on the cross. The human and demonic power is broken over those who trust Jesus. Because really the worst thing anyone, a government or a person, can do to you now is kill you. And if Jesus transforms death into a doorway to new life, then really, what do we have to fear? If the powers of this age want to control you by fear, and you know that Jesus went to the cross to remove this thing of death, you can't be controlled anymore. You are free. I mean, think about it. If Jesus is the source of your significance, you don't need money to prove that you matter. If Jesus is a source of your identity and value, you don't need status to prove you're important. If you have a noticeable platform, if you're popular, you don't need notoriety to bolster your significance. You simply use it to help others because the love of Jesus is a source of your identity, of your significance, of your value. Status, money, power, you name it, have been defeated on the cross, and in Jesus, you are set free. And Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. This love, this forgiveness, this freedom is an invitation to a new life. And it's shaped like a cross. You know, the Greek word for life used here is the word suche or psyche. It's from which we get our word psychology. And it's a Greek word that actually meant your identity, your personality, your selfhood, what makes you distinct and valuable, valuable, where you get your identity. And so I want to be clear, Jesus is not saying here, I want you to lose the sense that you have an individual self, right? That's a modern Western appropriation of Eastern philosophy. If he wanted to say that, he would have said, you must lose yourself to lose yourself. 
But of course, he isn't saying that. Ultimately, Jesus wants us to find ourselves. Our selfhood isn't an illusion, it's real. So he's not affirming a version of anatta, the doctrine of the no-self. He's saying there is a real you. And don't build your identity on gaining things in this world. Every culture has things that are achieved to give you a sense of value. In traditional cultures, um, they emphasize family milestones. So uh, marriage and having children. While in our culture, we emphasize things like status and affluence, uh, a well-curated progressive lifestyle. Right? And I could say more, but the point is that all of that is a performance-based way to gain an identity. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. Jesus says, take me, take my life, my death, and my resurrection, and place that at the center of your life. To take up your cross means to honestly reflect on what Jesus has done for you. And when you do that and you let his love into the center of your life, you allow it to shape your desires, your hopes, and your plans, your very life. I mean, it affects every aspect of your life, the kind of work you accept, uh, the kind of vacations you take, the relationships you make, how you spend your money. I mean, it touches everything. Taking up your cross to follow Jesus means decentering yourself, your agenda, and your plans, and putting Jesus at the center of your life. It's not negotiating with Jesus. It's not saying, well, Jesus, I like this part of Christianity, but I don't really like this part of Christianity, right? Or I trust this part of the Bible, but ah, I don't trust this part of the Bible. It's not that. It's surrendering to the Messiah, the anointed one, the suffering servant, the king of kings, who loves you with an infinite life, an infinite love, and gave his life for you to offer you real love, the forgiveness that you need, and the freedom that you were made for. This is radical. It's just like Jesus going to the cross. It's so unreal when you think about it, yet it happened, and it's amazing. And as unreal as taking up your cross might seem, it feels, it's the only way to have the love of God transform your life. You know, at the end of the, that wonderful book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, um, he shares an insight that will change your life if you let it. So let me leave you with his words, and then we'll pray together. And this is what C.S. Lewis writes. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death. Death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him 
and with him everything else thrown in. My friends, let's pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you have sent your only son into our world to go to the cross for us and to offer us real love, true forgiveness, and the freedom that we were made for. Lord, help us to uh, put this wonderful truth in the center of our lives. Let your truth and your love shape our decisions every day for our great good and your greater glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.